Looking back on the Korean War, one might assume that the outbreak of a violent conflict that killed millions of people would preclude the possibility of a peaceful resolution of the division on the peninsula. Surprisingly, however, there was an effort in 1954, only a year after the armistice that halted military engagements in Korea, to resolve the Korea question through diplomacy. It's not a secret that this conference failed to resolve the division, but it was nonetheless historic. And while the international environment has changed drastically since, the lessons that the meeting offers to summit goers today is critical. Our guest today is KAI Vice President Mark Tokola, who has done extensive research into this event using declassified State Department documents. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute in Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Yang Kwan, and you're listening to Korean Context. Mark Tokola is the Vice President of the Korea Economic Institute and a veteran foreign service officer with postings that range from Reykjavik to Ulaanbaatar. He was the Deputy Chief of Mission at the American Embassy in Seoul from 2009 to 2012. Thank you for being with us on Korean Context today. My pleasure. You recently delved into extensive archival research on the 1954 Geneva Peace Conference. I think some of our listeners will be familiar with the historic event because of the role that the conference played in dividing Vietnam into North and South. I think fewer people are familiar with the fact that the conference also addressed, although unsuccessfully, the division on the Korean Peninsula. Would you give us a a little bit of an insight into what drew you to this lesser-known aspect of the 1954 Geneva Conference? What I was looking at first was the armistice itself, because there's been talk in the last few months about maybe trying to have an end-of-war declaration or trying to deal with the armistice in some way, the 1953 armistice. And so I went back to actually look at it to remind myself what the provisions were. And I came across this Article 4 in the armistice that says there will be a high-level political conference held to deal with what they call the Korean question, and et cetera, is what it says in Article 4. So I got curious about what that led to, why the conference didn't happen, and then discovered that it, in fact, did happen. So it was looking at the armistice that led me to the conference. Beyond the substantive details of the conference itself, the participants at this conference are quite interesting. It's the who's who of the early Cold War era. There is U.S. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, the People's Republic of China, Premier Zhou Enlai, Soviet Foreign Minister Vyacheslav Molotov, and the British Foreign Minister Anthony Eden. But it's also very difficult for, I think, modern viewers to step into the shoes of these big names when they entered into the peace conference in 1954. Would you be able to briefly sketch out uh, perhaps some of the perspectives that these individuals were bringing into the conference as they discussed the division on the Korean Peninsula? As you say, it's a remarkable gathering. It's one of the reasons it's surprising we don't know more about it because these are, for people who study Cold War, these were the biggest names of the era. And they weren't just there for a day or two. Uh, the Geneva Conference lasted 50 days to talk about just Korea and lasted longer to talk about Vietnam then. So Dulles himself didn't spend the entire time there. He stepped away, but uh, all the rest of them, Zhou Enlai and Molotov and Anthony Eden and Paul Omri Spock, these great figures, were actually there for months trying to deal with the issue. So it was a different era when you could do diplomacy at a kind of a grand scale like that. And of course, they're coming into this after having already 
fought a international conflict in the Korean Peninsula. There mm-hmm. was the Greek crisis before then, and then the coup d'etat in Czechoslovakia. So I'm guessing that they also were coming into the conference with significant level of distrust towards the communist bloc and the communist bloc towards the nations of Western Europe and the United States. Yeah, it was clearly a tense time. And it's important to remember, too, in retrospect, how soon this was after the end of World War II. The war just ended nine years before the Geneva Conference. It was very fresh in their minds. And the proximate cause of the conference was the fact that uh, there were unresolved issues from World War II that uh, everyone felt needed to be dealt with. So in early 1954, in February, they had a four-power meeting in Berlin. So the four powers at the time were the U.S., USSR, the U.K., and France. So those four foreign ministers met in Berlin to try to resolve unresolved questions in the Second World War. Germany, Austria, Vietnam, and the Korean armistice, really above all. You know, the armistice negotiators in Korea thought that after the armistice, then they could have this bilateral commission between the communist side in the South and the United States and make progress on trying to deal with the division of the peninsula. It wasn't supposed to be forever. Mm. This was supposed to resolve the armistice and resolve the division. And that broke down. North Koreans and Chinese wouldn't even talk at Panmunjom. So the post-armistice conference procedure totally failed. That's what frustrated the United States. So for Dulles, the question was, how do we get the Korean situation resolved? And if we can't do it in Panmunjom, we should raise it to a higher level. So in Berlin, among the four powers, they're the ones that decide to take the Korea issue on. And at Berlin, the four powers called for the Geneva Conference. That's the origins of it. This is a remarkable insight because in retrospect, from the perspective of 21st century readers, 1954 is only still the beginning of the Cold War. The Korean War is, of course, behind us, but the Vietnam War is still ahead and the nuclear proliferation is still ahead of us. So this is the upswing of the great tension between the Soviet Union and the United States. And yet we are discussing about how in 1954 there was a potential resolution of the conflict in the Korean Peninsula. Is it your sense from your archival research that there was actually a genuine belief that a peaceful resolution and reunification of the Korean Peninsula was possible at this very moment. The assumption was that the uh, peninsula reunited. The UN resolutions and General Assembly all said that. China said it. Soviet Union said it. Everybody said the problem is how to put Korea back together. So it was a universally shared view that the division was temporary and artificial. So the question was how do we solve that problem? It was never foreseen as being a long-term division of the peninsula. So yes, it was more, more than believed. In Geneva, they went in intending to do it. And with the issue in Korea, and as you mentioned in the meeting in Berlin as well that preceded the Geneva Conference, there were also divisions throughout the world, other post-war, post-conflict issues that they were addressing, including the division of Germany, the occupation of Austria, mm-hmm. and also the ongoing war in Indochina. Did these events, uh, from your archival research, did you find that these events were also affecting how the respective participants of the Geneva Peace Conference was addressing the Korea Peninsula issue? Yeah, they're all connected. And that's why one agenda in Berlin was those four issues. Germany, Austria, Vietnam, you know, China, they called it, and Korea. And they were all things being part of the same general issue, which was that there were unresolved issues from the Second World War. Mm. These are things that just couldn't be taken care of and still needed to be resolved to have real global stability. So remember that the division of the Korean Peninsula only happened because of the end of World War II. The question was, who's going to accept the surrender of Japanese forces? So the division of the peninsula at the 38th parallel was for the purpose of seeing which side of that line 
the Red Army from the Soviet Union, and the U.S. Army, which arrived after the Red Army in the north, would receive Japanese surrenders and then return the Japanese soldiers to uh, Japan, and then bring Koreans that were in Japan back to Korea. So that was a reason for the division. It was not supposed to be a political division, but it became so. So a late resolution of a conflict that already ended nine years ago, and more than just the resolution of the Korean War itself as yeah, well. Yeah, trying to tidy up issues from World War II. In terms of the setting, when we think about Geneva in the 21st century, our minds immediately go to the United Nations. But you mentioned in your piece that this actually wasn't held under the auspices of the United Nations. Why was that? Uh, it could not be a UN conference because China and North Korea considered the UN to be one of the belligerents of the Korean War. You know, there was a unified command uh, led by the U.S. with 16 other countries involved that fought the Korean War. So there was, there was an alliance system which had a UN flag. And so for the Chinese and the North Koreans both, uh, the UN was not a neutral convener of conferences. It would have been one of the war belligerents. They wouldn't have it. China was not the original sponsor of Geneva Conference. It was the four powers. And the Soviet Union was acting as a sponsor for China. In Berlin, the Soviet Union tried to argue that China should be a fifth sponsor, a great power for the conference. Uh, the U.S. and U.K. and France wouldn't have that because China was not even recognized as being the representative of the Chinese people. It was still the nationalist Guomindang of Chiang Kai-shek, who's official UN member for China. They were not involved. But also they couldn't include China as a full power because they weren't recognizing them. So this was the issue. You know, how do you get China and North Korea to a table to negotiate? So from their side, it's not the United Nations because the UN's a belligerent. From the US side, China and North Korea are not legitimate governments. So how do you invite them? How does it work? And in Berlin, it was actually resolved by the French foreign minister, Georges Bidot. He was the one that cracked the problem by saying, tell you what, we'll have a Ford party convened conference, and then the four parties can invite others. So the United States invited South Korea and invited the other UN combined states. So there were 16 on that side. And then the Soviet Union invited China and North Korea. So the US didn't have to invite them. They were invited by one of the four powers. That's you got the 19 countries together. And you mentioned the United States inviting South Korea, and you also mentioned that in the archival research that South Korea responded quite poorly to the convening of this peace conference. Why was that? I mean, this, you, you are talking about a country that does aspire for unification of the Korean Peninsula. Why the poor reaction to a conference that seemingly is gearing up towards the objective? Uh, it's even worse than you say, because the United States didn't even consult with the Republic of Korea before the Berlin conference. I think the U.S. side recognized that South Korea would oppose a conference of that nature. Sigmund Rhee believed that the solution would be solved by force, that they should, unification should happen very rapidly. It should happen by using military tools if necessary. Rhee was very afraid that if you had an international conference, South Korea would be on the losing side of a large vote. So the international consensus would be for unification, maybe on terms that wouldn't favor the Republic of Korea. So he felt a bit besieged by the idea of a conference. Um, South Koreans were totally opposed to having neutral nations involved in any kind of a conference involving the peninsula, particularly India. They did not want India involved at all. So the United States decided to try to put the conference together with only belligerents to announce it and then to inform Seoul that they'd done this. Like you said, the reaction was bad. John Foster Dulles' law partner, Arthur Dean, went to deliver the message along with the U.S. Ambassador Briggs. And Sigmund Rhee was very unhappy when he was given the decision from, from Berlin had been made public already. But he said, look, if my American friends insist on this, I'll go along with it. But he was grumbling. The next day, 
one of the South Korean government newspapers blasted the agreement publicly and said it was betrayal of the Republic of Korea. It was illegitimate. Uh, the United States had betrayed Korean interests. They were more, more than angry. And the South Korean foreign minister at the time, Pyongyang Tae, also went public and said that we don't know if we're going to attend or not. So they left that open for a long time. So the U.S. promised that the conference would be one in which the U.S. would consult closely with the Republic and that they would have no outcome that the Republic didn't agree to. So the U.S. tried to be mollifying afterwards, but it was pushing and shoving. And as much as the South Korean government might feel a little betrayed by the process, I'm also reminded that South Korea never really agreed to the armistice either. So it seems like Seungman Rhee is acting quite consistently with, as you mentioned, support for more of an armed solution to the unification of the Korean Peninsula. Yeah, and as you said, they wanted unification, but they didn't think it could be done through a peace conference. Well, heading into now the peace conference, and there's great detail in your report about the last-minute nature, as you mentioned, the South Koreans are withholding their potential participation. There's challenges with the seating arrangement, also with arranging translators. The logistics of this conference is quite difficult, but also heading into the conference, the substantive nature of the negotiations were also quite hairy. And there's this wonderful line that I hope to just read very briefly. Um, You write, if the conference was predestined to fail, then it would be best to start with a proposal that global opinion would find reasonable, stick with it, and then blame the communist countries for having failed to accept it. If, however, the negotiations had a chance of succeeding, then it would be best to begin with a more extreme proposal and to negotiate towards a compromise. This is, of course, coming from U.S. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles in addressing the other 16 nations that will be participating by invitation from the United States at this conference. Um, And where did the United States ultimately land in this option between do we go with more of a public relations stunt and then blame the communists or go with a genuine uh, push towards peace and negotiate towards something of a compromise with the communists? Yeah, that to me almost is the key question. Because in retrospect, a few people have talked about the Geneva Conference, talk about the fact that it never had a chance. That's not how the U.S. perceived it, or even the communists. We can talk about that. So this quote of yours about which position to take is one where Dulles was talking in behind closed doors to the representatives of the 16 allied countries. And he went through this kind of, for them, kind of musing out loud. We have the record of that. And Dulles just said exactly that. We can either assume going in, it's going to fail, or we can assume it might work. And so he chose the might work line. So Dulles told him that he intended to offer an extreme position, knowing it would not be accepted, and try to negotiate it back. And it's not just what Dulles said. You might be suspicious about the way he was portraying himself to the allies. Maybe you might think that Dulles was just playing to the audience. But we actually have the secret documents, which have now been declassified and are in the U.S. National Archives, that have the U.S. negotiating position on paper. And they confirm what Dulles said. They had their three positions, and they thought they'd start with A and lose, and they might end up with C, but they were, they were going in to negotiate seriously. I don't think that they predicted success, but they thought success was possible, and they thought they had to try for it. So I'm not sure anyone went in believing that they would guaranteed come out with a solution. But I think they thought it was within reach. And from your research, did you find that this was a view that was shared by the communist side? Fortunately, we can see their documents too. And this is thanks to the uh, Woodrow Wilson Center's Cold War History Project, which is a great thing that they've done. So Woodrow Wilson Center has gotten documents from uh, the Chinese and Russian archives and translated them and made them available. So we can see what their internal thinking was too. 
And what you can see from that is that the most enthusiastic partner about going in was Beijing. Zhou Enlai told the Communist Party in Beijing that this is an opportunity for China to succeed internationally. This was China's first international conference. And for them, this was the, going to be the gateway into being a responsible international partner and be accepted as a great power. The Chinese calculation was if we could succeed in Geneva, there will be other conferences and other subjects and we'll be invited to be there. We're going to contribute to this positive outcome. So they went in too trying to make this work. Right. So China was motivated into the negotiation because they believed that this to some degree would provide soft recognition of the People's Republic of China which is quite the change in position, because you mentioned earlier in our conversation that it was actually the Chinese that had refused to talk after the armistice was signed. Right. So this is quite the, uh, the change in position thereafter. Yeah, but it's a different setting now. It's different from uh, being able to make progress at the working level in Panjim, as opposed to having a success in Geneva where you could have Dulles and Zhou Enlai shaking hands on a deal. That'd be an amazing picture. Right. So the Chinese had a great incentive to make this work. Russians were skeptical. Uh, they knew a little bit better. I think Molotov commented in some notes to Moscow after the Beijing meetings he had that he didn't think Kim Il-sung was going to go along with elections no matter what. But again, you know, if he had enough pressure on North Korea from the Russians and the Chinese, maybe it would have worked. And we know that the South Koreans were quite upset. And we have, as you mentioned, newspaper articles where the South Korean government's made that position very vocal. Is there any indications on the North Korean position, how they discussed the conference with their Chinese and Soviet partners? Um, we can see a little bit from what the Russians and Chinese say. We don't have the North Korean side of the story. And I have to admit that we don't really have the full South Korean side of the story. I'd love to find a South Korean research partner who could look at the South Korean archives and have their descriptions of what happened before, during, and after Geneva. So I hope to fill in that gap someday. And who knows about North Korea, maybe eventually. But uh, the, the North Korean negotiator was Nam Il. He was the general that signed the armistice. He was the head of the Korean People's Army. And he was assigned by Kim Il-sung to be the lead negotiator for Geneva. So this is a, a serious individual. He represented North Korea. And he and Zhou Enlai and Molotov met often in Geneva. They had close consultations. Seems to have been quite smooth. We don't see, I don't see signs of um, big breakups in their positions. So North Korea was at least cooperating as far as we can see. And how did the 16 nations invited by the United States coordinate amongst themselves? Yeah, that's a good point. Because the 19 countries who were in Geneva were all there in their own capacities. And they were all equal. So coordinating was necessary. It wasn't a block. So the 16 had their own secretariat to try to coordinate their positions. And the 16 held 11 coordinating sessions during the Geneva conference. So they spent a lot of time trying to coordinate among themselves. And that was necessary because some of the states, especially Canada under future Prime Minister Lester Pearson, and Belgium under future Prime Minister and future NATO Secretary General Paul-Henri Spock, had their definite views about the way negotiations should go. So there were lots of voices in the room. I'd say the UK had an outsized role because apart from being one of the four powers to convene the Geneva Conference, Anthony Eden was one of the three chairs of the conference. They agreed to rotate the chairmanship among three people, Anthony Eden, Molotov from the Soviet Union, and Prince Juan from Thailand. So the UK was there as a convener and as a chair. So their role was quite key. Interesting, but not John Foster Dulles. Uh, no, the United States couldn't chair the meeting because that'd be seen as being too lopsided. There's a big discussion about who would chair it. And they talked about the four powers, but that would have meant three on the Allied side, only one on the Communist side. So they agreed that Prince Juan would be kind of the intermediate chairman because Thailand was part of the unified command. 
But Thailand had pretty good relations with the Soviet Union and China at the time. So they were prepared to have Prince Juan serve as the kind of swing chair between Eden and between Molotov. There were four substantive concerns heading into the conference. There was the withdrawal of the soldiers that had been deployed to the Korean Peninsula during the war, the elections on the Korean Peninsula, the proportionality of the votes provided to North and South Korea, and then the role of the United Nations. Would you be able to briefly describe what was the biggest concern to the participating negotiators and among these four issues? I guess it's a relative thing. I mean, none of the issues were easy, but among the four, they made some progress on the first three. So on withdrawal of foreign forces, the South Korean position going in, support of the United States was the communist armies had to leave the peninsula, but the UN would remain until the deal was finalized. Well, that was unacceptable. Uh, toward the end, they were getting to, to the idea that there'd be a phased withdrawal of both UN and US forces and of the Chinese forces before the election or just during the election. They were kind of figuring that out roughly. There could be a, a staged joint withdrawal. On the elections, the going in position was elections only in North Korea because South Korea had its elections in 1948 under UN supervision. And so they said, we've already done our part. They just have to do their part. That was also not tenable. And the South Koreans did agree that they would have elections throughout the country under supervision. So that was a concession. On proportionality, this was the one where the Russians and Chinese insisted the North Korea have equal status with South Korea in making arrangements for the future. So it's supposed to be a joint Korean commission. And the insistence was that North and South Korea would each have a veto over it. They'd be equals. Uh, the UN side, South Korea and the US, said that South Korea's got a much larger population. So it's going to have to be overrepresented compared to North Korea when it comes time to create the governance structure. And the communists did back off their position a bit on that and say that the joint commission that would lead to the final agreement would be equal, but that the National Assembly and the elections would be proportional. So they made some progress on that. It broke up over international supervision. The 16, the allies, said that it had to be UN supervision, that that was necessary. The communist side, first their position was no international supervision. This was a traditional pre-war line that the South Korean, North Korean people should settle us on their own with no forces on the peninsula. But that's what happened that led to the war because North had the much stronger military and uh, was much more disciplined about trying to enforce its will. So that looked like a prelude to a second war. And so, no, it couldn't be without supervision. So the communist side said, all right, we'll have a neutral nations commission that will supervise the withdrawal of troops and elections, not the UN. This was seen as a trap by the 16 because the armistice was being supervised by a neutral nations commission. This was what the communists had asked for in the armistice. That's what happened. But the communists were able to sabotage that system. The two neutral nation members from communist bloc countries essentially prevented the neutral nations commission from doing anything. And so there's a lot of distrust the idea of having a neutral nations commission that oversee the total withdrawal of forces and elections and new government. So that was the breaking point. One thing I found that I thought was remarkable was a secret U.S. fallback plan, again, declassified since then, that the State Department prepared. And the plan was, what do we do in Geneva if we can't reach a final settlement? What practical steps could be made? And so the U.S. plan went through and talked about things you could do short of unification. They talked about postal and telephone links, a rail and road, some intergovernmental communication, economic trade. So they were looking through what could be done to help solve the division of the peninsula in a very practical way. They never had a chance to use that paper. It's in the archives, but it was not discussed in Geneva, as far as I can tell. Remarkably, the Chinese had the same thing. 
Now, this was in the Wilson Center's documents, too. So the Chinese had prepared a fallback position to use in Geneva if unification couldn't be achieved. The Chinese paper talked about road and rail links, trade, and intergovernmental communications. If China and the U.S. had sat down in Geneva, they would have seen they had a lot in common in terms of practical things that could be done. But they never got to it. So why was there not another conference? So Geneva fails in 1954. Mm-hmm. Why not another one. At the end of the Geneva conference, it collapsed in kind of a heap. I described that in the paper in some detail about how it failed on the last day. Uh, The U.S. and the 16 had determined that the supervision issue was not going to be resolved. And that rather than drag the conference out and have the communist side introducing new compromises on the other three issues where you could have some progress, it would just make the 16 look bad. Because the communists had figured out what their sticking point was. Once you know that, then you can start manipulating conferences. So the U.S. decided they had to come to an end. And after the Geneva collapsed, there was some talk about reconvening at some point. But the DMZ hardened, mm-hmm. and it just never happened. There was, there was never a reason to get back together. Nobody proposed to get back together. So the agenda is still laying out there to be picked up again. You were mentioned of the Chinese and U.S. fallback position on inter-Korean rail and phone communication. Trade. And, and yeah. trade is remarkably similar to what the, the Moon administration is advancing today as part of their inter-Korean cooperation, kind of a pathway towards a peaceful resolution of the conflict in the Korean Peninsula today. Mm-hmm. Are there other lessons that policymakers should draw from the Geneva Conference for today's context? Yeah. Uh, to me, there's a couple of things you can see in the Geneva Conference. I don't think there's any way you can go back and resurrect any specific proposals because the world has moved on. Things don't seem as relevant now as they seemed then for the, on those issues. But the things worth remembering is the perspective that the division of the peninsula is artificial and should be brought to an end and can be. It's not a radical idea now to talk about intercoring cooperation, as you said. It's not a very radical idea to talk about some kind of uh, integration economic or political, perhaps. Those ideas don't seem crazy when you look back to the perspective of Geneva, when there's assumption that the peninsula should be united, and there had to be some way that you could make that happen. I think the lens you see the Korean Peninsula through is different if you remember the history. You know, even in these strong anti-communist days in the United States, even John Foster Dulles, who was a cold warrior, thought that the division of the peninsula should be brought to a conclusion and could be through negotiation. That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Mark Tokola, and to you listeners for tuning in. If you're interested in reading up more about the Geneva Conference, you can find a link to Mark Tokla's full research paper in the description of this episode. And if you haven't already, please consider listening to our previous episode with Dr. James Person and William Stuck, where we discuss the 1954 Geneva Conference briefly in the context of the impact that the Korean War had on South and North Korea's outlook on the world. And if you have a moment, please rate us and leave us a comment on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. It would mean a whole lot to us and help other people find Korean context. We'll be back next week with more commentary and analysis. See you then.